0: Welcome to Indie Matters,
1: the show from the Nevada Independent.
0: I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno.
1: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas.
0: On this week's episode, I dive into the world of winemaking in Nevada, specifically about growing grapes in the desert and why we may see more wineries open
1: across the state. Afterward, reporter Rocio Hernandez and assistant editor Jackie Valley interview the outgoing superintendent of the Washoe County School District, Kristen McNeil.
0: At the end of the show, reporter Humberto Sanchez and Tabitha Mueller talk about what an impending Supreme Court decision could mean for abortion in Nevada. Fifteen years ago, Kathleen Russell and her husband Robert moved to the Palomino Valley, about an hour and a half north of Reno, near Pyramid Lake. They moved from near the Napa-Sonoma area.
2: We were one of those hippies that positively wanted a vineyard. And we uh, dreamed about it, but kids in life. In
0: 2018, Kathleen and Robert decided after much research that they were going to follow their dream of having a vineyard in their retirement. And a year later, they were planting grapes on their five acres north of Reno and started Palomino Vines.
2: We had the same kind of soil you're going to find in eastern Washington volcanic, sandy, very little organic matter, all of the things that grapes love. We planted in 2019. It took a lot of work. We got the vines in the ground. It took us 18 months. We worked nonstop. We have 6,532 vines. We have Syrah, Cabernet Sauvignon, Malbec, and a brand new wine called Petit Pearl.
0: So why are we talking about wine in vineyards today? We have fewer wineries than any other
3: state in the country. Why?
0: That was Grant Kramer, a professor emeritus from UNR, who studied grape growing in the state. And he's asking the question that made me want to look into this story in the first place. Why are there so few wineries here? The reason why our wine industry is so small seemed pretty self-evident to me at first. We live in a desert. It's not a place where things grow. I didn't imagine grapes grew here. <laughs> well, it turns out that that is not at all the case, and actually the reason has to do with policy. But before we get into that, let's set the stage a little bit. Wineries and vineyards are not synonymous. Stuart Michelle is the president of the Nevada Grape Growers and Winemakers Association, and he explains the difference. Do we also have vineyards in Nevada, or are all of the wineries also a vineyard?
4: No, they don't all have wineries. So there are commercial grape growers, and some of those folks have vineyards and no winery. And you also have wineries that don't have any vineyards. They basically buy all their grapes, and then we also have a combination of the both.
0: Wine is not something that I think of when I think of Nevada. We do not have very many wineries. How many do we have,
4: actually? So there's eight commercial wineries in Nevada. There's uh, four in northern Nevada. There's one in Lovelock. And then there are three active wineries in southern Nevada, two in Pahrump and one in Henderson.
0: So back to this policy issue. This is partially why there aren't more wineries or vineyards in Nevada. Up until 2015, you couldn't actually operate a winery in the two most populated counties in Nevada. Nevada law said that any county with more than 100,000 people couldn't have a winery. That was set in 1993, and prior to that, it was counties larger than 30,000 people. At the time, it was designed to encourage tourism, agriculture, and economic development in rural counties. But Grant explains the problem with that approach.
3: There's such a potential for tax revenue, just like there has been with cannabis, right? That we should be exploiting that and allowing that to blossom rather than inhibiting it. Washington State is the best example to that. We have very similar climate to the eastern Washington, where the grape growing and wine region is. And they have millions, if not billions of dollars of revenue coming in.
5: AB 4, I'm looking for a motion to do pass for AB 4. Madam Vice Chair, Senator Farley has uh, seconded the motion. Is there any discussion? Seeing none, all those in favor say Aye. aye. All as opposed, same sign, motion passes. Now we'll move into the work session. So
0: in 2015, the Nevada legislature passed a law known as AB4, which allowed wineries to open in more populated counties with a few caveats, which we'll come back to in a minute. But first, here's Stuart Michelle again, explaining why the Nevada wine and grape community kind of needed this central organization.
4: Our purpose is to bring together the grape growers and the winemakers that are here in Nevada, as well as attract new people that are putting their feet into the business and bring everybody together so that we can have a common goal. There wasn't a central organization. There wasn't a a single mission.
0: In California and places where they grow a lot of wine, they measure grapes in hectares. In growing wine markets like Texas and Colorado, they measure in acres. In Nevada, though, we measure by the number of vines growing in the state. It's been seven years since Assembly Bill 4 passed, and we still only have eight wineries. There are still some caveats to having wineries in Nevada, though. One is that wineries have to use 25% Nevada-grown grapes, and right now there's just a lack of supply from grape growers in the state to provide grapes to winemakers. One reason for that is that it takes about five years for a vineyard to reach its full maturity, and uh, Kathleen Russell with Palomino Vines started planting in 2019, and they can start harvesting after about three years. But they don't get a full crop until about five. But Kathleen and her husband have also faced a few setbacks with their vineyard along the way.
2: In 2020, April 20th, we had five and a half hours of 27 degrees. We lost every single vine. So, the very first disadvantage of Nevada vineyards is everybody assumes it's too cold. And it is. It is very cold here, and it's very difficult to get over that hump. And so it was also the first year of COVID. (laughs) No employees. So we let them sit because we did know that vines can Mm -hmm. come back, and they did. We got half of the field back, which was thrilling, wonderful. Last year, we planted... 2,885 vines um, to fill in. It was just all we could do. Grapes have such a dynamic and vibrant lifestyle. Their cycle is very clear. And so you do get involved in it. You mm-hmm. kind of become one with it. There's like that synergy amongst your vines. So, What,
0: what did it feel like then when you lost your grapes in 2020?
2: we were devastated. It was like how could we have let them die? What what didn't we do? And really at that point, we couldn't have done anything more because we didn't know what we didn't know. That was a very sad year.
0: With those challenges, there is one thing that I got wrong when thinking about growing grapes here in Nevada. The desert is surprisingly a great place to grow grapes. The cold maybe not so much, but the dry climate is not an issue. Here's Grant Kramer again, who studied climate resiliency of grapes when teaching at UNR. In
3: 1995, I met a person who was interested in planting grapes in in Nevada. Nobody had tried to grow wine grapes, and frankly, I thought it was a crazy idea. One of the secrets to improving the growth of the grapes was to give them less water. We were overwatering them during the summertime. That's one of the things that we did in our research was to show you could grow grapes with a lot less water than most people think. We could produce grapes at 12 times less the amount of water applied to an acre of alfalfa. So grapes turns out to be pretty darn drought tolerant. In a sense, they're pretty cold tolerant, but not as cold as our native species. So there are hybrids out there where people have been breeding them to try to improve on the cold tolerance. The thing that grapes are not very good at is salt tolerance. They're very, very sensitive to salt. We have a lot of salt in Nevada, 50% of our soils in Nevada that are irrigated are salty. So that poses a problem.
0: Palomino Vines is just one of the vineyards filling the gap in the grape production deficit that is limiting Nevada wineries.
2: We, we have a very clear dream. We want to sell exclusively to Nevada. We are 100% backing Nevada wine. We have talked to a lot of wineries here. It really comes down to your year of harvest, come talk to us.
0: Because there aren't many vineyards here, the wineries can't produce large amounts of wine to get their name on the map. Here's Stuart Michelle again with Nevada Grape Growers and Winemakers.
4: We can actually do lobbying for our members. And that is something that we're certainly thinking about doing in 2023. There's some key roadblocks that I think need to be eliminated before you have entrepreneurs and business people and investors thinking about starting vineyards and opening up wineries in Nevada. We we certainly know what most of those key pieces of legislation are. For example, the 25% rule. It, it's a good thing in that it potentially encourages more grape growing in Nevada by requiring that 25%. But if that's a limitation, you're not going to, let's say, have a big investor who wants to make 10,000 cases of wine. Most of the boutique wineries would say you need to at least be producing and selling 5,000 cases of wine a year to make a sufficient profit. If we've got to have 25% grapes and there's no grapes here or not enough grapes for the wineries that are already here, there's basically going to be a, a tragic lack of supply.
0: And while the wine coming out of Nevada right now is limited, Nevada can hold its own against some of the other more established wine-growing states.
4: It was one of the first wineries licensed after the laws were changed in 2015. And Nevada Sunset Winery won double gold in Best Shopping.
0: So, what is it going to take for Nevada to ramp up and realize its potential in the wine industry? Here's Grant Kramer again.
5: It
3: takes an entrepreneur. It takes somebody with money. To go out and start something brand new is a big risk. So, you have to know what you're doing. So, there hasn't been somebody that's come in and said, okay, we're going to make this a big commercial operation like the cannabis industry has done. It's gotten huge amounts. of investment for it. So that's, that's one reason. We've been under the radar. And why would they come to Nevada if they've got a nice property in California? There has to be some advantage, whether it's economic or uniqueness of the climate. And that's something we have to build with reputation. When Washington State first started 30 some odd years ago, they weren't very well known either. Today, people are throwing money at Washington State, you know, and doctors and lawyers and football quarterbacks and all (laughs) sorts of people taking their lots of their money and buying up property and starting up wineries. But it's still just in its infancy and it's just going to take time.
0: But some see winemaking and grape growing as having uncorked potential.
4: I think it's exponential. Uh, We have all the opportunity. The General Assemblies and the legislators in our surrounding states had the vision and also the early winemakers. Washington, Oregon, obviously California, but Idaho and, and Colorado and Arizona and New Mexico and Texas generates over $13 billion for the state revenue coffers. Colorado is something like $5 billion already. So I think the potential... is is dramatic. And Nevada is the state. We rely on, let's say, three primary industries, gaming, mining, and agriculture. And so why not adapt and modify and expand the agricultural ability of Nevada? We've got all the space in the world and grapes don't need a lot of water.
0: As for those venues that are paving the way, Kathleen told me that while this is her and her husband's retirement project, it's also a way for them to leave an important legacy for their children.
2: For us, Our biggest motivation is that we want to create a legacy for our children. The legacy is Palomino Mines. We only do a sustainable. That is absolutely my primary goal. We have not ever grown anything that wasn't sustainable. To me, it's an important legacy to leave for our children. And I think that it is very viable in the state of nevada to do that other than the freezing temps which we can control by different varietals i can't think of a better place to grow grapes this is our first harvest so we're very excited
0: This story was reported, produced, and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. Alright, well, from wine to a job that would probably make you want to drink more wine, we are talking about the Washoe County
1: Superintendent. That's right. Uh, she'll be retiring at the end of this school year, and the county has recently named her replacement Washington State Highline Public Schools Superintendent Susan Enfield.
0: Yeah, and so this is uh, only part of an interview that we did. Uh, reporter Rocio Hernandez and assistant editor Jackie Valley talked to Superintendent Kristen McNeil, but you can find more of the interview on our website at the Nevada uh where Rocio wrote up a story. Kristen McNeil started as interim superintendent of Washoe County School District in July of 2019, before being named the permanent school district leader in April of 2020. During that time, she has guided the district through the pandemic and the subsequent economic fallout and challenges. But she's retiring at the end of this school year after spending 26 years within the Reno Area School District. Education reporter Rocio Hernandez and assistant editor Jackie Valley recently sat down with McNeil to talk about her tenure and the future of education.
6: In your almost 30 years within the district, I'm sure you must have seen it go through changes over this course of time. But what's
5: kept you personally in the district for so long? Both of my my children uh, graduated from the Washoe County School District I believe in Washoe County School District. I am Washoe County blue and yellow through and through. It doesn't mean that we've made some course corrections and mistakes over the years in in all of the different positions that I've had, obviously. I mean, that's how you learn and then you move on. But I'm exceptionally proud to be an employee of the Washoe County School District and I always have. We've had our challenges over the years, right? With the Great Recession, all of those periods in time superintendent transitions, all of that just makes for a richer career, I think. Well, I remember about two years ago, your appointment
7: as superintendent became official, and it was right at the very beginning of the pandemic, which must have been so interesting for you, more so than the rest of us even. Reflecting back, what do you consider your biggest challenge during that time period and also your biggest accomplishment?
5: Well, I've, I've said since, since the pandemic hit, right, and we can always go back to that date and time as far as March 16th, right, when we had to close schools, it's been a team effort. It is not about one person. It is absolutely a team effort. And then the, the, the superintendent's recommendation was to open up our schools and the board, in my opinion, was very, very brave, but, but deliberated a long time and pressed us coming up with answers and looking at how we're going to be able to do this. So I think one of our proudest accomplishments as the Washoe County School District was keeping our elementary schools open five days a week and our middle and our high schools open on the hybrid schedule. But during that very first year, it was really difficult for our schools and they rose to the challenge. We had some teachers who were teaching distance learning, teaching hybrid and teaching in person. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Hybrid looks really good on paper. It's quite another thing to put that into action. But our principals and our teachers, our support staff, they just knocked it out of the park. Was
7: there one particular moment that was such a challenge you think about when you look back on that time period?
5: Oh, goodness. We've had we had so many challenges. I can remember walking through schools and principals and teachers, like literally taking a yardstick and measuring out three and six feet. All of that had to be planned. Our facility staff had to go in and make all of these accommodations, whether that was cleaning products or PPE, that whole supply chain with the personal protective equipment. I I think reflection is, is healthy. Sometimes you just need quiet time just to reflect. And we haven't had a lot of that recently.
6: Jumping into the present a little bit here, a couple weeks ago, we covered that the district's Board of Trustees has selected a new superintendent, Susan Mm -hmm. Enfield. And I was wondering what advice you might have for her, especially since she's coming from out of state.
5: Well, I'm I'm thrilled with with the board's decision for Dr. Enfield. It's always important when you come into a community to get to know that community. And I think she's absolutely done her homework. And I, 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 think, and so I think she will have a transition plan and what that will look like. I imagine there's going to be some opportunities for listening sessions uh, with, our, with our staff, with our employees, our families, and importantly, our students and getting to know where they're at and where do they want to go. It's their futures. Let's turn back to the kids for a minute. How are they actually doing emotionally and academically at this point? We had one of our student voice representatives speak to some of the concerns that our students have. And obviously, I I touched on mental health, which is a huge concern, absenteeism and engagement, making sure that our students feel engaged in their learning. And then that adult relationship. Every child needs to feel connected to their school, and whether that's through a teacher or a principal, a counselor, social worker, and then the ability to have activities, be engaged, whether that's athletics or clubs. And now we're, we're able to do that again, right? We're having musical festivals, but we really need to focus in on making sure that our students have the supports that they need, whether that is a counselor, a social worker, and to listen to them. What, what are their concerns?
7: What do you see on the local level as the biggest threat to public education right now?
5: Well, I think it's definitely funding for the state of Nevada for education, and we've been very clear about that, and especially for Washoe County School District, we have the lowest per pupil. Doesn't mean that we are not grateful for the additional funding from our legislature and our governor, but we need to take on that challenge as far as funding for public education on a broader scope. And then obviously continue the work around staffing vacancies, whether that's in our support staff bus drivers nutrition services aids and assistance and then for our teachers as well too and then morale our staff oh. has been through a lot
7: as you're preparing to exit if you had a magic wand what would you do to improve education or something that you wish you could have done that maybe you just didn't have the means or ability to do as superintendent
5: I think we need to definitely take a look at making salaries and, and wages marketable. This isn't, I'm not saying anything that hasn't already been said, but we need to take a look at the cost of living and provide livable wages for our staff. I was also
6: hoping you could elaborate a little bit more on the housing cost impact, uh, the district's recruitment and retention abilities among teachers and, and you, know, you know, if their salaries can keep
5: up, as you said, and give them a livable wage. Absolutely, and when it's not just a Washoe County School District issue, it's a community issue, and we need to tackle it as a as a community. In my opinion, for for recruitment and retention, can you can you afford to to pay your mortgage? Can you afford to you know pay your rent? Rents have increased dramatically. I mean, you all have reported on that housing cost. So I think it will definitely have an impact if we can't get the the costs of housing addressed, and and whether that's I know the governor has, has made some efforts around that with the 500 million for, for housing city of Reno, city of Sparks are are working on that issue. But I think we all, we all need to continue to work on that. It's not, it's not just a school district issue. It's, it's, it's a regional issue and we need to address it as a region.
6: And then lastly, we wanted to ask a little bit about your upcoming retirement plans. In addition to probably getting a much needed uh, vacation off of schools and having time for yourself, I was wondering if we could expect to continue seeing you be involved in Washoe County or Nevada education.
5: This is my home. I have no, no plans on leaving, so I will be around and I've already already been asked to volunteer on the first day of school so I'll be helping out over at the New Hug High School with traffic and then just spending time with my with my husband and my, and my children and, and my parents as well too.
1: A leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court shows that a conservative majority is ready to fully overturn Roe v.ersus Wade. The case has protected abortion rights in the United States for decades. It's not final, and things could still change. It also doesn't necessarily mean anything in Nevada law will change immediately because of the way it's structured. But it could still mean big impacts on the healthcare system here, especially if people from out of state start coming to Nevada to get abortions. To help break down all of that, Joey talked with reporter Humberto Sanchez. And Tabitha Mueller.
0: I am here with reporter Humberto Sanchez and Tabitha Mueller, and we are talking about the Roe versus Wade decision. It's not actually gone through yet, but we assume that it is going to go through and that Roe versus Wade is going to get overturned. So, what does that mean, you know, from a 50,000 foot view?
8: Yeah, that bombshell story has basically set off a big chain of events. So now it helps. It's helping Democrats turn the page on the election. So we're seeing all the Democrats pivoting to running on abortion rights. That's the big picture. We have Senator Cortez Masto in Nevada, and she faces a very tough re-election campaign. She's used this to raise money. She's using this basically as a way to try to drive a wedge between women, between all kinds of independent voters. And Adam Laxalt, who is her likely opponent and who's very pro-life. And then we also see it manifesting in the Senate. The Senate this week is going to vote on codifying the Roe v. Wade decision that is expected to fail because in, in under Senate rules, you need 60 votes to overcome any filibuster. And the Senate is currently split 50-50 between Republicans and Democrats. And so there's not 10 Democrats that will vote with Republicans. And even Democrats amongst themselves don't agree uh, on this issue. So we'll see Senator Joe Manchin likely vote against it as well. But Democratic leader Chuck Schumer sees this as a way of getting Republicans on the record and essentially cutting political ads down the road about how Republicans want to take away the right to choose. And also to this point, Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell also said that they wouldn't rule out a national ban. And that's interesting and it's important to Nevada because- Nevada is unique in that it has its own (laughs) rules uh, with regard to abortion.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Tabs, tell me a little bit about that. Some people are saying it's in the Constitution, and that's not actually right. It's not actually in the state Constitution. So explain to me how abortion laws work in Nevada and why there's so much more protection here than there are in other states.
9: Right. So when we start talking about abortion laws in Nevada, we need to talk first about where Nevada's abortion laws came from. So in 1989, a group of citizens gathered and orchestrated this really intense political effort to safeguard existing reproductive rights in Nevada through the state's referendum process. And that came kind of amid this debate over abortion access and efforts to cut down row in the federal judiciary at the time. So in 1990, after that really intense political effort to pass it through the referendum process, nearly two thirds of Nevada voters approved the ballot measure, which codified state law allowing for abortions within 24 weeks of pregnancy, timing that mirrors rose protections for abortions before fetus is viable. And what that means is that it wasn't part of the constitution. It's in state law.
0: Yeah. And so I think the reason that people are getting a little confused about this is because the way that referendums are passed and appealed, it's kind of a similar process to how you would change the state constitution.
9: Right, Uh, right. And then in 2019, um, we saw additional protections for abortion access come in when Governor Sisolak signed a bill removing a requirement that doctors share the emotional implications of undergoing an abortion and repealing some felony criminal penalties on abortion that had been there since like the early 20th century. Effectively, what that means in terms of abortion laws being overturned in Nevada, it means that abortion laws in Nevada could only be overturned by a direct majority vote. And Nevada's lawmakers and governors don't have any power to restrict abortion access earlier than 24 weeks into pregnancy.
0: And 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 if and when Roe versus Wade goes and gets overturned by the Supreme Court, what does that mean for Nevada? Actually, because well, it doesn't necessarily affect people in Nevada directly. Um, you know, people could start coming to the state to get abortions now, right?
9: Right. So what Planned Parenthood Votes Nevada has said and we've heard from lawmakers is it's expected that Nevada would become sort of a state where people would come to for abortion. So we would likely see an increased strain on the healthcare system here. You're likely to see a lot more usage of abortion clinics. And the overturning of Roe v. Wade also has implications for other rights and other cases that use the outcome of Roe v. Wade as a precedent. So we've seen questioning of what would this mean for LGBTQ families and communities? What could this mean potentially for individuals in mixed marriages in terms of ethnicity? So I think there are a lot of concerns surrounding that in particular as well.
0: And then just to wrap up, Humberto, we've been talking about the election coming up a lot, and people are saying that there's going to be a red wave. And I'm just curious from your perspective in D.C., is this going to have an effect on that? Is this perceived red wave going to kind of be lessened because Democrats are a lot more riled up now?
8: I don't think we really know yet. I think we're going to need to see some more polling on the issue. Republicans, when this first came out, were much more focused on the fact that there was a leak at all. And that was a big breach in the norms of the court rather than on the substance of what, what's coming down the pike. So uh, they want to make this election to be about inflation and economic issues, which are typically the issues that people vote on. You see Democrats now trying to make this about choice and about taking away rights that, that have been here for you know more than a generation. So uh, this is going to be a big one.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Stuart Michelle, Kathleen
0: Russell, Grant Kramer, Kristen McNeil, Rocio Hernandez, Jackie Valley, Humberto Sanchez, and Tabitha Mueller for
1: being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder. If you want to support the
0: show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, best toppings for avocado toast, or whatever else is on your mind at joey at the com or jacob at the com
1: Our theme song is from the band People with Bodies, and we have additional music from story blocks and original music from Joey.
0: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato.
1: And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis.
0: And we'll talk to you next week.